Well, if you would join me in opening your Bibles to Luke chapter 8. And we'll be picking up where we left off last time in Luke chapter 8, verse 4. And once you have found Luke 8, verse 4, if you could please stand and join me for the reading of God's Word. And when a great crowd was gathering, and people from town after town came to him, he said in a parable, A sower went out to sow his seed. And as he sowed, some fell among the path, and were trampled underfoot. And the birds of the air devoured it. And some fell on the rock, and as it grew up, it withered away, because it had no moisture. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it. And some fell in good soil, and grew and yielded a hundredfold. As he said these things, he called out, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And when his disciples asked him what this parable meant, he said, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God. But for others, they are in parables, so that seeing they may not see, and hearing they may not understand. Now the parable is this, the seed is the word of God. The ones along the path are those who have heard. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts, so that they may not believe and be saved. And the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy. But these have no root. They believe for a while, and in a time of testing, fall away. And as for what fell among the thorns, they are those who hear. But as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. As for that in the good soil, they are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart, and bear fruit with patience. This is the word of the Lord. You guys may be seated. The title of this sermon is varied responses, inevitable harvest. Varied responses, inevitable harvest. What you notice about Jesus's preaching and teaching ministry, and this goes back to the background from the last couple of weeks, is that he is primarily a preacher. He primarily preaches, he does healing, he does many uh, acts of mercy, and he does much mercy ministry, but his primary role is to proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God. That's what we saw in the uh, opening verses of chapter 8 last week, that he goes all over through the cities and the towns proclaiming and bringing the good news. What you see then this week is uh, another example of what it looks like for him to go and to preach. And as he preaches, he preaches often in parables. This is one of the things that the Gospels are known for. And we've seen parables so far in Luke's Gospel, but there is a uh, few parables that exceed this parable in terms of uh, widespread uh, familiarity. Many people know this parable. Many people grew up on this parable. And so then the question is, what does this parable mean? And how is it profitable for us who stand 2,000 years later? What, what is the purpose of us studying it together tonight? You might find it strange that we open up this book week after week after week and we read old texts that have been written long ago from people who have long since passed and then we study them and we apply them and we exhort them to one another. Why do we do something like that? Well, it's because as Jesus preaches these words in this parable to his audience, so too the Holy Spirit 
to our hearts preaches these words to us as we gather and we preach and we teach and we study God's word together. So with that all being said, let's look at this parable, both the, uh, the telling of the parable and then the explanation of the parable, and we will see what Christ has for us today. He says in verse four, uh, it says in verse four, background information, that there's a crowd of people gathering and they're from town after town and they're coming to him. And so what this tells us is that this is probably his normal preaching and teaching ministry, right? Earlier we see that he goes proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God, but it doesn't tell us how he goes about doing that. We know that he's preaching, but what is the content of those various sermons? This is one such sermon. And so often Jesus would preach in parables. We've already seen this, for example, in the Sermon on the Mount in Luke chapter six, where he's preaching and he has the Beatitudes and then he has the woes. And then he, he has all those parables. Uh, and so here's another parable that he's proclaiming. And the parable is strange. For us, it's strange because we are not uh, agricultural society anymore. We're an industrialized society. So he's telling this parable, and for the people who he is teaching, this is a on-the-ground, real-life, everyday, understandable illustration that everyone would, would know and be able to picture. For us, who are removed from his context, it's much more difficult for us to understand exactly what he's trying to convey. The practice in, in this time would be uh, unlike today when we, when we fertilize fields and then we plow them and we get them all ready and then we plant the seeds and then we water and fertilize again. In that day, they wouldn't till the soil until after they had sowed the seed. So what would often be the practice for farmers or sowers, as they're called, is they would go out to the field and at the beginning of the harvest time or at the beginning of the, the planting season, they would have a whole basket full of seeds and they would just walk around spreading the seeds all over the field. They have to coat the entire thing. And so some of the seeds land in the middle of the field. Some of them would land more on the periphery or the margin of the field. And these fields are in the common place where, where people walk and where people go about their business. We've seen this because Jesus and his disciples, they get caught walking through a field on the Sabbath and picking grains and rubbing them through their hands. So these fields are in the way. Everyone sees this. Everyone knows this practice. And the idea that Jesus is bringing about is that there's a sower who's casting these seeds all over the field. And some of these seeds, as everyone understands, do grow and they do produce a harvest, but some of the seeds don't. And so what do we do with the seeds that don't produce a harvest? What do we do with that kind of response? So he's, he's explaining to his people this, and he explains that of the seeds that don't produce a harvest, there's three different kinds of seeds like that. The first one is the kind of seed that lands almost in the way, right on the corner of the field, this is the seed that falls along the path, as it says here. It's trampled underfoot, meaning people, as they're walking by, they walk over the seed, they pay no attention to it. And the other uh, end result for these kinds of seeds is they get uh, picked up by birds and eaten and then brought, drawn away. That's one kind of result for the seed in this illustration. The other option, or the next option that he tells us about, is seed that falls on the rock and what that doesn't mean is it falls on a boulder. It means it falls on rocky soil. So soil that looks like it's part of the field, but it's not nutrient dense, it's not deep, it doesn't have fertile ground. And so the rocky seeds obviously would be able to take some kind of root, but they can't hold any moisture. The rocky soil doesn't hold moisture, the seeds can't put their roots down, and so they have no moisture, they too wither away and perish. Some of the seeds, this is another result that could happen, they fall among the thorns. Now what that doesn't mean is that they fall out on the side of the field, away from the field, uh, out in bushes or, or in a wild part of the, of the growing area. 
What, what he's saying is that there's seeds that fall, and when the seed falls, there's also thorns that are there in the ground. And when the seeds are tilled and harvested and, and when, they're, when they're being fertilized, what happens is the thorns grow up right alongside the seeds. They put their roots down, they grow quickly. And what happens is the thorns grow up and they choke out this third kind of seed. So the third kind of seed grows, it makes it pretty far along into the harvest process, but eventually it too withers and dies, not because of lack of moisture, not because it didn't first take root, but because it was simply choked out by the weeds. And then, as is uh, obvious to all his listeners, there are some seeds, or else this wouldn't be done as a, as a harvesting practice, there are some seeds that, in fact, do land on soil, the soil is fertile, the seed takes root, the seed grows, and it produces fruit, and it yields, as it says here, a hundredfold, which should bring to our mind, or to his reader's mind, it produces a vast harvest, that kind of seed. So as he's calling this out, he's explaining this, he's bringing to mind this picture, he's painting it for them, and then he calls out at the end, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And that's an awful strange thing to say if you're talking about seed, because there's no ears, there's no humans involved in this process aside from the sower. But when his disciples and, and are understanding what he's saying, they're confused by it, and so they ask for a further explanation. What is it that you were getting at as you were telling us this, this parable of, uh, as it says here, the parable of the seed or the parable of the soils or the parable of the sower? What is, what is he getting at by saying that illustration? Fortunately for us, in this case, not only does he give us a parable like we've seen before, but this time he's going to interpret the parable for us. And not just with a one-line summary, uh, but he's going to give us a, a detailed exposition of the parable to tell us what the, the seed is, what the soils are, how do we make sense of what he's been saying. But before he says that, I want to pause on what he says in verse 9 and 10, and what he said previously then in verse 8. In verse 8, he says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And the first thing he says to his disciples once they ask for the explanation, this is in verse 10, he says, to you it has been given to know the secrets of God, but for those, for others, these secrets, they're in parables, so that by seeing they may not see, and, and note this, hearing they may not understand, they may not hear. So Jesus is doing two things. He's saying, he's explaining the parable, he's saying, let he, him who has ears to hear, let him hear. And then on the other side, he's turning his disciples and saying that you can see and you can hear, but there are others, the reason it's in parables is so that they can see and they, they won't really make sense of it. Or they can hear and they just won't understand it. In the same way that uh, Jesus uh, tells this uh, to his disciples, we understand that there's a difference between those who audibly take in the parable and those who are able to, let's say, process and grasp hold of what the parable is talking about. This isn't a difference in terms of information. It's a difference in terms of, uh, let's say, beauty or, uh, or a difference of belief. Because it's clear that the disciples are about as lost in terms of information as everyone else is. So he's not saying that because he has to explain it. But what he is saying is once the information goes down into you, once you get what he's actually saying, that there are some who are going to hear this and they're going to enjoy it and they're going to understand it and they're going to grasp hold of it. And there are others who are, that's not going to happen. They're going to see it, but they're not going to get it. And they're going to hear it, no matter how many times you say it, they're not going to understand it. And that's a strange thing because he's saying on the front end that his, his sowing ministry, his preaching ministry, is one that inevitably yields different kinds of results. There are some who hear the gospel and never respond to the gospel. There are some who hear the gospel and for some time grow in it and then later walk away from it. And there are some who grow 
and they grow and grow and grow and they reach maturity and they are mature Christians who can be presented before the Lord faithful and true to his cause. So then how do we account for the differences? What is the difference between the person who hears it and despises it, the person who hears it and then later walks away from it, and the person who hears it and stays true to it or who endures to the end? What's the difference? Well, that's where this explanation comes in. And by telling us on the front end what, the, what all parables serve, us, serve for, he tells us that there's a difference. Some people, parables are for them to understand and further get it. And some people, parables are for them for it to further veil or further be disguised from them. And that'll become clear as you move through uh, these verses. So he says, after that seeing they may not see, hearing they may not understand, this is in verse 11. He said, now the parable, the parable is this. The seed is the word of God. That's easy enough to understand. The seed is the word of God. That's a good starting point because it's going to get uh, difficult to understand from this point forward because there's lots of moving pieces. The first part is, though, the seed is the word of God, which, he, which means that the parable he was preaching was about his preaching. He was preaching about what his preaching does. So he's saying the seed is the word of God, which is what he's preaching, the gospel he proclaims. And the, the first one, the first soil, the ones that are along the path, they are those who have heard, right? But what kind of hearing has taken place? They are the ones who've heard, but then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and may not be saved. So this first group is the group that he tells us about earlier that they may see and not see and they'll hear it, but they won't understand it because no sooner does it enter their ears or enter their minds and is it snatched away or distracted from them or taken away from them. That's that first group. What that means is that Jesus preaches the gospel to them. He preaches repentance and belief and they hear it, but they just turn around and just as soon as they hear it, they forget it. It doesn't even have a chance to take root. But he's not attributing this note to their ignorance. He attributes it to Satan's work. He attributes it to the devil who comes and takes the word away from their hearts. What's interesting is earlier in the parable when he tells it, he, he has two different things. There's birds that take away the seeds, which could be seen as you know, spiritual forces grabbing them up. But the other thing he says is there's also people who walk over, trample the seeds. And in our experience, when we preach the gospel to people, that's the kind of thing that we see. We see people who we preach the gospel to, and they despise the gospel. They hate it. They want nothing to do with it. But we can't attribute that to their ignorance or their uh, lack of awareness. We attribute it to them being enslaved to the powers of darkness, them being enslaved to Satan's devices. They're so enslaved that Satan just lets them walk around because they will despise any of the seed that they come across. Doesn't Paul tell us in Ephesians that uh, the, this is not something that we do because people are in a neutral territory before God. We preach the gospel because people are enslaved to their sin. They're in darkness. They're led away by the prince of the power of the air. So this is not a neutral fight. And there are some who trample the seed. They're people who are enslaved by the devil. And the devil keeps other people enslaved by as soon as they hear the word of God, as soon as they hear the gospel preached, it's taken away from them. So they have no opportunity to understand. And what's interesting about that is it brings to mind something that we all know is true, which is that what we do as Christians is a spiritual fight. When we engage in the preaching and the teaching of God's word, when we share the gospel with someone, whether you're a pastor or not, when you, when you preach the gospel, 
what happens when you are interacting with someone about that topic is there is a spiritual battle going on behind the scenes that is unseen. And we shouldn't be naturalists in that we believe that there is no such thing as the spiritual realm because scripture front and back confirms that such a realm is true and in many ways terrifying. Here it's telling us how that spiritual realm interacts with the preaching of the gospel in that when the gospel is preached, spiritual forces are at work both to advance the gospel, the Holy Spirit and the angels are, advanced, are advancing the gospel, and the evil forces, the forces of Satan and hell, are going against the gospel, trying to get rid of it, trying to get people distracted away from it, trying to get people to ignore it. There's a spiritual fight happening. Doesn't Paul tell us that we do not war against, uh, against things of this world, we war against principalities and, and spiritual forces. That's the kind of fight we're engaged in. And so we see here that there are people who are enslaved and they're so enslaved that they hear it and they just ignore it. And we can't chalk that up to them being stubborn or them being ignorant or them being worse than us. We realize that that is them enslaved to darkness. And I think understanding that gives us more clarity on how we are to approach people who are despising the gospel that we preach. We don't, as Christians, become bitter towards them. We don't become uh, hate hateful towards them. We don't uh, spit back at them when they spit at us. We, we don't engage at the level of discussion or the level of insult that often you might be subject to as a believer because you recognize what's actually going on. They don't hate you. They hate the message that you preach. And they hate it because they're enslaved to spiritual wickedness. They hate it because they're enslaved to darkness. As, as Paul says uh, in 1 Corinthians, he says, our, if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. And we shouldn't uh, kick people while they're down as they're perishing. As, as we preach the gospel, we preach to win souls to Christ. And Paul says that if it's veiled, if, if in the end that they, they despise it, they turn away and they ignore it, it's because those are the people who are perishing and they are enslaved to this sin. So as we preach the gospel, as Christ was preaching the gospel, he's explaining what's going on by saying there's a group of people that hears the gospel, despises it and hates it. And the reason is because they're spiritually enslaved in many ways. And Satan is at work to keep them in that state. They're the kind of people who hear the gospel that you preach or the faith that you share. It's a coworker, it's a friend, it's a family member, and who thinks it's foolish and doesn't think any more about it. That's their level of interaction with it. They think God is uh, foolish, outdated, antiquated, maybe potentially unjust. They hate the gospel. These are the first group of people that Jesus is telling us about. And so we shouldn't be surprised when that happens in our ministry. It's not a failure in technique. It's not a failure in our uh, ability to communicate with them. It's a failure in their ability to be freed from their sin. So it's not on the sower, it's not on the technique, it's on the spiritual battle that's happening behind the scenes. This, you'll notice the sower knows that this is gonna happen before he goes to sow the seed. And so if we know that this is gonna happen before we preach the gospel to people, it shouldn't hinder us from preaching the gospel to people. It shouldn't affect our uh, are going out and sharing Christ, even if we know that, that we are inevitably going to come across people who are going to treat the gospel like that. There's another group. The second group that he talks about is those who fall on the rock. And the explanation of that, remember, they're the ones who lack no moisture. They don't have moisture, so they wither away and die. In the interpretation, verse 13, he says, and the ones on the rock, they are those who, when they hear the word, they receive it with joy. But these have no root. They believe for a while, and in a time of testing, they fall away. So now we move to a second group of people, 
This group is different from the first because in this group, some growth takes place. Some, some germination has happened with the seed. But what's, what's true about this group as well is in the end, if you were to zoom out 100 years, their seed is just as gone as the other seed was. Their seed grew for a time, but had no root. It couldn't put down roots. It's in rocky soil. And so when, when a time of testing comes, since it has no roots, it has no foundation, it has no base, it uh, withers and dies. It goes away with that time of testing. And it's pretty easy to understand what that group is. It's the people who uh, respond to the gospel, who get excited about faith, maybe for uh, a reason that's uh, outside of Christ, maybe what Christ offers them or something they think they can get out of it, or maybe they're genuinely excited about what they've heard. But there's no further progress, there's no further response. And give it enough time or give it enough temptation or trial or frustration or suffering, and the seed dies. The faith within them dies. Now, I don't think that the purpose of this parable is for either this seed or the next seed to ask the question, can someone lose their salvation? There's other parts of scripture that deal with that question. That's not the purpose of this parable. But it, in the final analysis, what we, what we can resolutely say about this parable is that this seed does not make it to the finish line. They don't endure faithfully. They don't make it to the end. Why? Because there was no root. There was no foundation. What, what we can learn from this is that there's no amount of emotional high or emotional response that we can whip people up into to get them to ride that out faithfully to the end. If faith is real, if it's genuine, then it will endure. Because getting people into an emotional frenzy to make an emotional decision is not converting someone to faith. You can get people at a concert into an emotional frenzy and get them to respond in many of the kinds of ways that well, Christians try to get people to respond to faith. This is where uh, altar calls go wrong. This is where uh, people go wrong when they uh, try to have a, a revival and they try to get people up into a frenzied state so that they can ride out the rest of their Christian life in that way. And what Jesus tells us is they receive it with joy initially, but, but joy is not an indication of true faith. Joy, joy might be an indication of true faith, but it's not a, a definite sign of true faith. What's a sign of true faith is faithful endurance to the end. And this seed doesn't endure, it's not true, and so, in a time of testing, it falls away. It's not much testing, but it is enough testing to get it to abandon ship. That's that second group of seed. And Peter tells us uh, in 2 Peter that we, as believers, ought to confirm our calling and our election by holding fast to Christ, by being obedient to his teachings, by w growing in holiness. And he says that that's how we confirm our calling and election, and uh, you can work out how that all fits together. But Peter tells us that there's a kind of endurance that's necessary for believers. And then the third group, and this is the group that uh, is the most difficult to handle. And that's because this group is found out at the last moment. This is in verse 14, the explanation. And as for what fell among the thorns, they are those who hear, but as they go on their way, they're choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life. And their fruit does not mature. Now, that language of fruit maturing is, is strange. Uh, and if you're not familiar with the language of the New Testament, it seems strange. But in, in the New Testament, we've already seen places where John the Baptist says, you know, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Or Jesus exhorts people to bear good fruit as opposed to bearing bad fruit or immature fruit. 
And here he says this third group does not bear fruit. And so the difference is not in terms of the seed taking root. It's not in terms of the seed growing. The difference between this group and the final group we'll look at, the difference is in bearing or not bearing fruit. This group, this third group, bear, their fruit does not mature. It never reaches a ripe state of maturity. Why? In the language of Jesus, it's because it's choked out by the cares and the riches and the pleasures of this world. Now, that language of choked out might seem strange. Uh, when, you're, when you're talking about a plant, plant, you can't strangle a plant. So how, how plants choke out and die is from a lack of nutrition in the soil, from a lack of nutrition in the air around them. And in this case, because it's growing up around weeds and, and seeds and um, all other kinds of things which are competing for the nutrients in the ground, this one is choked out, not because the soil isn't fertile, but because the fertile soil is going in every single direction and there's no nutrients left for the actual seed to grow. There's cares and riches and pleasures of life. Those are the weeds that draw nutrients away from the soil faster than this seed can get access to them. And so as a result, this seed does not mature. There's no fruit born from this one. The conclusion, uh, when Calvin is reflecting on this, these verses, he says this. In reflection, tear up the weeds. That's his reflection on this. And I think it's, a, it's, an, it's not more complicated than that, right? If you're asking the question, how do I know that I'm not in that camp? Uh, as John Owen said, be putting sin to death or it will be killing you. You have to mortify these other things. And you'll notice how it's, it's not mentioning overt sins. It's, it's saying there's cares, riches, and pleasures of life. That's the thing that draws it away. So we can conclude there are some weeds that are unsightly and easy to tear out. There are other weeds which will compete for the same soil that are a little bit more beautiful. But in any case, a weed needs to be torn and a weed needs to be torn out. The cares and riches and pleasures of life, those are the same things that lead to our bodies uh, aging prematurely. If you live in the West, most of the diseases that we have today are caused not by starvation or lack of nutrients, but by an overabundance of nutrients, comfort, and pleasure, and they lead us to all kinds of things. And most of the sicknesses and diseases you see among the aging population is not from starvation or things, uh, lack of access to nutrients. It's from an overabundance of pleasure, an overabundance of riches, an overabundance of wealth, which is killing our bodies. And by that same kind of picture, we can see if it's killing our bodies, certainly, certainly it's killing our souls. And that's not because they're bad things. It's because when they draw nutrients away from the good thing, they become bad things. There's not enough nutrients in the soil for it to go in a million different directions. As, uh, as, we, as we look here, we see that the idea of it being choked out is, is driven by, let's say, these competing interests. These things that choke out the plant are cares, right? Cares of life, which means that you care for things, but you don't care for things that are ultimately important. The riches are riches for this life, right? Jesus says, he never says riches are a bad thing. He just says riches are a really dangerous thing. Riches can cause us to become very fixated on this world and not so fixated on storing our treasure in heaven. The pleasures of life, it's probably easy to see why that category makes it because uh, we can pleasure ourselves into a total state of coma and never consider anything ultimate. We can doll up the world around us. We can insulate ourselves from thinking about death we can insulate ourselves from thinking about pain and suffering. I mean, how many of us have ever had to take a cold shower unless the hot water is out? We have pleasures abounding in our life. And sometimes those pleasures are great comforts, 
but they also cause us to want more and more and more pleasures and more comforts. And they keep us tied down to this life. They deceive us into thinking that this life is the life that can ultimately give us real pleasure, real satisfaction, real comfort. And that's a lie because they can give us pleasure and comfort and satisfaction, but it always comes at a cost. Either for our bodies, it comes at a cost, or for our souls, it comes at a cost, and we never really consider anything beyond this life. Jesus tells his disciples not to pleasure themselves with the world. He says, take up your cross. That's his command to his disciples. And a cross is not a comfortable thing. And as a Christian, you realize pretty early on your journey in the faith that if you have to be killing sin all the time, this is going to be a really uncomfortable process for a really long amount of time. And as soon as you realize that, you have an option. You can stop putting sin to death. That's a lot easier, a lot more comfortable. Or you can get on for the long fight. And what you do determines which kind of soil you end up in. As John uh, says in his letter to uh, the church, 1 John, he says that there's a group of people that eventually leaves the church, apostatizes. And the reason they leave the church is because the whole time they were with us, but they were never really with us. They looked like they were with us for a time, but eventually something took them away. Paul talks about Demas, who was loving this present world, abandons him. Judas loves this present world and abandons his Messiah. And we run that same risk. And don't think that the amount of uh, emotional experience you've had with Christ or the amount of faithful believers around you will somehow protect you from this. This is something each of us needs to resolve individually and lean on community to help us resolve it. But we can't ride into heaven on the backs of other believers. We can't believe, uh, we can't uh, have faith as a result of others. And so we need to ourselves be putting these kinds of things to death. And then that leads us to this uh, third, or sorry, fourth group. This is the group that actually yields a harvest. And in verse 15, we see that this is the good soil. The seeds that landed here, they're in good soil. And they are those who hear the word. And notice the difference in what happens with this seed. They hear the word, they hold it fast in an honest and good heart, and they bear fruit with patience. The language of this seed, this soil, is one that has endurance the whole time as the end goal. It's not cheap, quick growth that can die quickly. It's not a growth that is muddled with a whole lot of other cares and desires and concerns that eventually outcompete it. It's holding fast to this one thing, this one growth, this one seed, and growing it well. It holds fast, and it's an honest and a good heart that holds fast to this thing, and the result at the end of the harvest season is fruit, which is born. And that fruit is born, you'll notice, with patience or with maybe long suffering. The fruit is born with endurance. At the end result, in verse 15, you see that the plant is healthy, the roots are deep, and the fruit of this plant is very sweet. And the difference between all the other plants in this one is not in the initial prospects of it, it's in the final analysis of it. In the final analysis, this soil has borne good, fruitful, healthy plants with good, healthy fruit. And now the question that often gets asked as a result is how, uh, how do I be that kind of soil? How do I be that kind of uh, plant? How do I ensure that that's my end result? It's a good question. Uh, because at the heart of this teaching is this implicit uh, command or this implicit example 
Don't be the three that fall away. Be the one that bears good fruit. It's been the command the whole time, right? Bear good fruit, don't bear bad fruit. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Now here, in another light, there's three that don't inevitably bear a harvest. There's one that does. And he doesn't say anything beyond that, but the inevitable uh, implication is be the one that's like that. So how do we do that? Well, John uh, chapter 8, verse 31, Jesus tells his disciples, he says, um, if you're really my disciples, be in my words, be in my law, love my teaching. You'll hold fast to what I gave you. So how can we ensure that we're in that group? Well, you'll notice, first and foremost, one of the things that qualifies that group is being able to hold fast with an honest and a good heart. And there's other places in Scripture that tell us that in ourselves, there's no ability to have this honest and good heart. It's not as though all humans are neutral before God with an honest and good heart, and we all receive the gospel, and some of us decide to spit it back out and others don't. The difference is in the actual quality of the soil. So some soils are inhospitable to the gospel, and others are hospitable to the gospel. Now the question, how do I ensure that my heart or my soil is hospitable to the gospel? How does that take place? Well, it's not the work of any man. It's the work of the Holy Spirit, which prepares this soil in this way. You'll notice a a triune uh, action here in the parable, right? There is the sower who's casting out the seeds. There's the father who sends the sower to cast out the seeds. And then there's the, let's say, non-stated piece of the parable, which is the, the soils, and some of them are ready and some of them are not. And how do you account for that? It's the work of the Holy Spirit. So you see the triune God at work, one to send a sower, the other to sow seeds, and the third member to prepare the soil so that it's fertile to receive and to grow these seeds. And so this is not you and me whipping ourselves up into being good and honest people, and then the gospel will finally sink in. This is hearing the message, holding fast to the message, and loving the message that was delivered. And you cannot whip yourself up into a desire to love the gospel unless it has been given to you, as Christ says earlier to his disciples, to you it has been given. To you it's been given to know these secrets. To you it's been given to receive this message. To you it's been given to have fertile soil, to grow and to cultivate and to bear fruit. And it's a gift. As Paul says uh, elsewhere, he says, this is a gift. The gift that we receive is a gift, and the faith to believe is a gift. It's all a gift, all from God, all something that we cannot boast in, because it's not works. And there's another doctrine at play, not just a triune doctrine. There's another doctrine, uh, which is what we would call the difference between the external call and the internal call. In this case, you'll notice the sower sows widely. To any any seed, uh, the seed will land anywhere. He's not picky about which soil he puts it down in. He's casting it far and wide. This is the model of ministry. This is what Paul does in the New Testament uh, in Acts. This is what Peter does. This is what James does. This is what all the missionaries do in the book of Acts. They have a wide, broad, external call, and they say to everyone who hears, to him who has ears to hear, let him hear. To you who believe, would you believe? Come now, Christ has offered himself for you. Would you believe? The external call, broad to everyone. But then there's also the doctrine of the internal call which says that Christ, as he sows the seed and as his followers sow the seed, there's a reality in that God has had to prepare the soil ahead of time for that seed to take root. And that's the doctrine of the internal call, which means some hear and they really hear. They're not only called externally, they're called internally. And that's not a difference between us 
and our techniques, us and our strategies. It's a difference between God and his infinite wisdom. So the responsibility on us as believers and people who want to make disciples is to go and participate in the sowing of seeds, the external call to cast the seeds far and wide to whoever may receive it. And on the other end, to pray for the Lord of the harvest that there might be a harvest. We do both because one is our work and the other is completely not up to us. And I think this is where a lot of modern uh, missions and a lot of modern ministries fail. Uh, We look a lot of times and we psychoanalyze what we do and how we convey the gospel and how we uh, go about sharing the seed. And this parable makes it clear, it's not a difference in technique from the sower. The difference is in the quality of the soil. We spend a lot more time doing that and a lot less time praying that the seed would actually take root. And in so, we completely miss what he's getting at, which is that one is God's job, and he is pleased to do it by his Holy Spirit ahead of time, and the other is our job to faithfully go and do what he's commanded us to do. And if we would spend a lot less time on techniques and a lot more time praying, maybe the Lord of the harvest would be pleased to have a lot more fertile soil. Paul says in Acts that uh, he's discouraged, he's in Corinth, and he says, you know, I am done with the city, I'm out of here, and God pulls him aside in a vision and says, Paul, don't go. I have so many more people in that city who are mine. Stay there. And Paul stays and he preaches and he evangelizes and many more people come to faith. That's not because Paul's gospel message changed. The whole time he's preaching Christ and him crucified. It's a difference in the Lord of the harvest being pleased at times to yield a harvest and at times not. And we see broadly, as we take a, a big step back from this text, we see that there's a huge variance in response. Some who hold some who deny outright, some who hold only for a time, and some who endure to the end. And in in the whole midst of that chaos, and this is our lived experience as we preach the gospel to people, in the midst of all that chaos, all that variance, all that craziness, there is, at the end of that, an inevitable harvest that will be had. And I think that's encouraging for us as we go and we share the gospel. Because we don't do it as people who are hoping for a harvest, We don't do it as people who are longing that God would potentially work as we work. God has told us he is about his ministry. He is about his evangelism, his gospel going forth. And so when we sow, we sow with confidence that there is an inevitable harvest. The gospel will go forth and do what it ought to do. And so we can go and evangelize with that confidence. And I think that's so uh, comforting, especially if you live in an environment or you interact with people who regularly reject Christ. It's very easy to look at that experience and to say, well, in conclusion, these people must not be it and I should go turn my attention elsewhere. Maybe this gospel message isn't all it was cracked up to be. Maybe I should just stop talking. Instead, we, we run away with the conclusion to go back to our knees, back in prayer, back to God, so that we can once again have energy and endurance and faithfulness to go back out and to sow more because of the promise of the inevitable harvest. As he says in the parable, this good soil grows and it yields a 100-fold harvest. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your words, which week after week refresh us. They challenge us. They encourage us. Lord, would uh, this time, this evening, would you uh, give us grace to be challenged where we need to be challenged, Would you be soft and gentle to encourage us where we need to be encouraged? And would you be pleased to yield your harvest, Lord? Would you be pleased to make this our mission? And would you 
be gentle with us as we fail and as we strive to walk this out faithfully. God, we're relying on you for all of what we've discussed this evening. None of this can be done apart from your gracious gift. None of this can be done apart from your sovereign will. Lord, we ask and we pray this in your name. Amen.